Hey everyone, Samson Kovacs from The Theology Pit here. We have a new way of getting a hold of me, if you'd like, uh, through Skype. You can. My Skype name on there is The Theology Pit. So you can leave messages or, if you would like, set up a time that you, know, you want to do an intro to the show or even ask a question. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology, Theology Pit. Pit. All right, well, that probably sounded weird. I had the um, external speakers on. But hey, everyone, welcome to The Theology Pit. And this is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit, because you know what we say here. Uh, I took a, I didn't take a deep breath. Uh, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I am, of course, your friendly neighborhood theologian, podcaster, host, Samson Kovach, uh, coming to you live from the suburbs of... Uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we are continuing our discussion on atheism. And, you know, we did, we, we looked at this letter to, you know, a, a Christian nation, so to speak, quote unquote. I mean, that's sort of like a Sam Harris-ish uh, type thing I just said there. But, um, you know, that's a very popular thing that, um, you know, atheists do is, is, is put out these deconversion stories. And they're always very interesting. But a lot of the problem with atheists and with atheism, in my opinion, and the reason why they're atheists is because of Christians and modern Christianity. We screwed up. We dropped the ball. I think that we should admit that. I think that we should admit that as a whole, we have not done our job in articulating our position and our belief in a in, in a theistic God, in Jesus Christ as God. And it, it's evident in all of these atheist conversion stories, it, it, people not only don't they have a gra- if they come out of Christianity or one of the Christian traditions, I should better say, and they cannot properly articulate what Christianity is, who God is, the attributes of God. Um, if they can't properly articulate that, that's our fault. It's our fault that because I mean. You, uh, what's the old saying? A mind convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Okay, you cannot tell people, well, just believe or just because, or, you know, you just have to have faith as though, you know, faith is contentless. Um, this shows that people. Honestly, let's look at this because, you know, I get kind of, uh, you know, I, I'm hard on atheists that are very anti-Christian, very vocal about it, about not knowing what Christianity is simply because um, I feel that it, it's one thing if you're an atheist because your questions were never answered in church. Okay. But to be a militant atheist and that you're not only, you know, denying it, in your heart, but you're also advocating for others to deny it, you then should be held to a higher standard. And that higher standard is understanding what you reject. Um, The possibility has to be in your mind that the Christianity that I was taught or the people that I was taught by when I was in church, when uh, when I was behaving as a Christian, they may have been wrong. And not wrong as that atheism is correct, but wrong in their understanding of Christianity. 
perhaps they didn't know. Perhaps they weren't discipled well enough. They weren't educated well enough. Discipleship is a big problem in the in the Christian church. So what you should have done first off is found out if what the people who were telling you these things were educated and were actually telling you the right things. Now, a lot of people kind of do atheism very sloppy in the same way that Christians do theology very sloppy. And I've said before that the laziest and easiest way to be a Christian theologian is to just understand and advocate for your uh, particular denomination or your particular faith tradition. It's the It really is the very bare bones minimum easiest thing to do because what you're naturally going to say is, Anything that doesn't square up with my understanding of the Christian faith or the atheist understanding is immediately wrong based on the way that I've constructed it or the way that it's been taught to me. So let's say that, you know, I was a Christian and I was a, we'll just say Baptist and um, Northern Baptist here, not, not Southern Baptist, but Northern Baptist. All right, first thing I would do is when talking to anyone and they quoted me scripture, if it wasn't in the King James Version only, well, then they're immediately wrong. And that's how I would look at it because that's my starting point is that the King James Version is the authorized version of the Bible. Even the the other translations need to be held up to it. And if the other translations vary from it, then they are wrong. And our translation is correct because it's the word of God. We need that center point in order to be right. So if this book that we have, the King James Version, is if somebody says that, hey, it might not be right, well, they're immediately wrong. For example, the woman caught in the act of adultery that we find in uh, in John's gospel at the end of chapter seven, the beginning of chapter eight shouldn't be in your Bible. Um, it's not found in the earliest manuscripts. Some manuscripts, it's found in, in at the end of Luke. Um, it's something that was inserted later on, but it's in the King James Version of the Bible. Therefore, you deny Scripture. If you say that that shouldn't be in there, you are not a believer, you are an unbeliever, you are going to hell. Uh, even though it can be demonstrated, you know, empirically, that it shouldn't be there that it wasn't in all of uh, all of the scriptures you know all of the, uh, the the manuscripts also you have this concept of um, the the King James version of the Bible as it is presently today is the way that it has always been when that's not true the 1611 King James version of the Bible had the Apocrypha in it. And those are um, what we call the Apocrypha. Roman Catholics, we call them Deuterocanonical, books second canon. Um, that would include like First and Second Maccabees, Baal and the Dragon, um, the Song of Susanna, I believe, is another one. Um, but anyways, uh, the point is, is that, you know, that's not in there. But... You know, they would say, no, this is the authorized version that we have, the, the one that I get from, you know, uh, Tinsdale Publications or wherever. And you just sit there and you dig your heels in and you defend that and say, no, I have to have faith. I have to have faith. And faith you've constructed as a blind faith, as, as something that you just have to believe and engage 
honestly in cognitive dissidence whenever you're doing this. You also slam the door on the concept that anybody before 1611 could possibly be in heaven because they didn't have the King James Version of the Bible. Atheists tend to do the same thing. If they've come out of Christianity, their understanding of Christianity, what they were taught, I mean, if they were, let's say that they were serious about their faith, I mean, because that happens a lot, you know, that people are very serious about their faith. And as um, you know, teenagers, you very inquisitive. You have a lot of questions and you want answers to. And that's absolutely appropriate and proper and right. Um, but they should take it that next step of not believing until they search and see for themselves, as you know the Bereans did in the, in the book of Acts. And Paul called them no, more noble for that. But if you have people who are not very well educated, not only just in apologetics, but in um, theology as a whole and different traditions, but you are only in this one tradition, well, that's what the kids are going to believe and assume. So when they become atheists, when they reject the faith, they're rejecting the faith because it was not able to be explained to them to their satisfaction, not because it's demonstrated to not be true. That is a, a huge problem in the church. And really, if if you want to start with um, combating, combating a- atheism, honestly, if you say, I want to be an apologist. I want to be a street preacher. I want to go out there and 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 join like you know, um, you know the wretched movement with you know, Todd Friel, who I, I do have many problems with him and the whole way of the master uh, crew like that that side of the lordship salvation understanding. Um, but I don't begrudge them in what they do. I just think that uh, they theologically have a lot of problems, uh, internal problems. They're not damnable heresies, but they are people who, just the fact that I said that would um, disagree with me and probably uh, claim that I have not been saved, that I have not accepted the gospel and I have not repented fully and turned from Jesus Christ and confessed all my sins and did all the other many things that you have to do and all the rules that you have to follow before you are justified. And I mean, even that, even me saying that is a little bit uh, facetious there. It's a little uncharitable. I probably shouldn't say that, but I do appreciate their ministry in in what they're doing. But let's say that you want to do that. You 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 know you want to go out and you know because you have such a burden for uh, atheists. Well, the f- place that you should start, to be honest, atheists don't come out of a vacuum. A lot of them come out of churches. So what you need to do is you need to learn proper doctrine broadly and be able to un- explain it. excuse me, explain what your position is, what other positions are, how they're valid, why you agree with them, why you don't agree with them. And you can stop people from becoming atheists by teaching them properly so that they hear that they understand and that they know. Okay. And, And then as they're moving through sanctification, they are um, have a solid ground. They are, you know, they have a solid foundation. Where sometimes you get people that are, you know, pretty strong Christians, maybe up through high school, and then they get to college where it's extremely anti-Christian, and you know, you have anti-Christian um, 
professors that are hostile to Christianity. You have anti-Christian students that are hostile to Christians. Um, being a Christian is, uh, you know, said to be like the whole, like we went through in that in that letter, misogynistic, racist, you know, sexist, homophobic, all that stuff. Um, and they start getting questioned as though they're supposed to know the answers because to be honest, you are. Um, you're supposed to study and show yourself approved. You're supposed to be ready in season and out of season always with an answer for the hope that lies within you. That's what scripture calls us to do. But if we're not training, if the church is not teaching people and training people in what Christianity is and what Christian doctrines are, the big move in atheism is our fault. I mean, you know, before it's like, why was atheism so small? And, and a lot of people would say, ah, well, you Christians were just burning atheists at the stake, which isn't true. You know, the problem is that you'd have, you know, what was known as the village atheist and everybody would just kind of ignore them and, and just laugh at them for, you know, more or less not understanding. You know, I mean, it, it was a different time period, of course, but the majority of the people were believers because they were well-educated in other areas, especially with the Renaissance movement. Um, you know, a lot of great science and scientific advancements come from Christianity. Uh, and, and the modern scientific method comes directly out of a Christian philosophical worldview, that there is a, a, a theistic God, a God that exists and um, transcends time and space to interact with his creation, that there is a certain order that is set up. And because of that order, then experiments that we do can be repeated. And we can use that as as proof for truth. And truth we've roughly defined as um, anything that corresponds with reality. So anything that corresponds with reality is true. The fact that these experiments correspond with reality shows that it's true. The fact that we can measure them using numbers, which are abstract concepts, show that numbers are true, abstract concepts are true, abstract concepts are true, and that this this type of order exists, and order doesn't come from chaos as we've seen, as, as it's been demonstrated, something always comes from something then we can understand that the concept of a theistic creative God exists. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, if something comes from something, then where did God come from? And there's a difference between like eternality. And I'm not just like punting that to say, well, you know, that's kind of the default mechanism. The fact of the matter that you cannot have an infinite regress of moments shows that there was a point where there was a singularity, at least, and before that, what was there? Because in order to have time, which is a succession of moments indicated by change, you need three things. You need um, space, okay, and you need matter or material, and you need movement and change from one position to another. So the way that we have time is a concept that can only exist with the whole, you know, E equals MC squared understanding of energy. And because of this fact that you need something necessarily that exists outside of time and space that is not under a concept of time and space. They are to be timeless. To create something like this shows that they are very powerful and very creative and creation is an act of will and will shows personality or personhood so we don't default 
to attributes of God um, because we don't have an explanation. We deduce what the attributes of God are based on logic and reason. It's called deductive reasoning. You understand what it is by what it cannot be. Okay, so um, I think if you if you were going to explain what a glass of water was without um, explaining, you know, the glass of water, you would do it using um, deductive reasoning. Okay. For example, um, there's a uh, a game called headbands that my kids love to play. It's it's they think it's hilarious. You put on this little headband, and then there's a card. Everybody gets a card that they then put in the headband, and you can't see what it is, but everybody else can. And so you have to use deductive reasoning to figure out what it is by finding out what it's not. So you get to ask three questions, and then it moves to the next person, and you would ask, okay, um, you know, am I living? They would say yes or no. Okay, am I a rock? You know, am I a mineral? No. Am I a, a vegetable? You know, am I am I an animal? Um, do I have? If I'm an okay, I'm a type of animal. Do I? Or, and they would say yes, you're an animal. Okay, do I have fur? And you know, you go through this until you deduce by taking away everything that it's not and starting to you know count down to what it is. And you don't have to. You know, do everything in the entire world. I don't have to sit here and try and uh, you know fill, uh, figure out philosophically why God is not a glass of water. That's already been eliminated by the fact that you know the glass of water is made up of parts. Okay, and when something is made up of of many parts, then those many parts at some point had to come together as a whole, which indicates that there is time, and it is also spatially located. So, and, you know, that it would have to change from empty to full, um, which automatically knocks it out of the category of being, uh, possessing godness, okay, being god. So, whenever we can't educate Christians, our, our, you know, our church, to be able to do just those basic things. Just what I did, just just sit there and, and just kind of muse over saying, okay, what is God? What are the attributes of God? Here, you know, here, here it kind of is. And that's partly um, of what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. And we'll get into that you know, maybe a little bit later. But um, we should be teaching our children, not only that, but also uh, some of the other things that were brought up in that letter that you see in many letters. Uh, number one, about the Bible, about where it comes from, the nature of it. The last Theology uh, Pit series that I did was all on the Bible for a specific reason. Um, and, we, and we do have to remember that uh, Christianity does not come from the New Testament. The New Testament came out of Christianity. It is basically a, a written record of what happened and its relationship to the Old Testament and um, you know, Christ's fulfillment as a sacrifice for our sins. When we don't understand that, and we become um, biblioidolaters, where we worship this book, and we worship this book as though it's God. And then we say, okay, so if there's anything wrong with this book, this translation in particular, then it can't be from God, therefore there is no God. And uh, that is not an irrational line of thought. It is rational if your basis is that this book is God. 
which honestly is idolatry. And that's why I call it Biblia idolatry because we worship the Bible as though it's God. We don't worship the God of the Bible. And that becomes problematic in a lot of the churches um, that I've, I've been in and people that I've talked to because I've said before, um, you know, if talking to somebody who refused to believe uh, on Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior because of what they would say were the discrepancies in the Gospels. And they say, look, the Gospels don't agree. And that's a lot of times that's a smokescreen because if the Gospels agreed 100%, people would scream collusion. They would say, well, that's not how real life is. They all say exactly the same thing. It was just a, a reproduction. And you're saying that it came from different people. That's not really from it. There, there's no happy medium there. But if it's approached as a general understanding historically of what happened, could you accept that? And, and sometimes they would say, well, I'd be more likely to accept that. I said, okay, then forget that it's the word of God. Let's just look at it as a historical written account. Um, you say that they all have problems, okay? Um, especially the synoptic gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and synoptic just means um, similar looking. Which one of those synoptic gospels do you think is more true? is writer. They would say, I don't know, let's say Luke. Okay, great. Then Luke wrote Luke and Acts. So that's kind of a good one to pick because it gives you a, a, a bigger, you know, longer uh, historical narrative, story narrative. I would say, great. Then just believe Luke. Don't believe the other Gospels. Now, Christians get nervous about that when I say things like that. They're like, what? You can't do that. No, I absolutely can just believe Luke. Because when you do, you're obligated to understand that Jesus Christ is your risen Savior. All right? The message of the gospel is more important than the words that describe it. The reality, I should say it like this, the reality of the gospel is more important than the words that describe it. If you're truly one of these people that say, no, it's, you know, we have to respect the Bible completely and, and we can't break it apart like that, then, you know, you should be the ones teaching Greek and studying Greek and advocating for that and explaining why they felt it necessary to not write these things down for a while why they just went out and, and preached and spread the gospel message without any New Testament. Because the gospel message, the reality of it, existed before the words did. And then, very soon after the, um, you know, the New Testament was written, different letters, you would find them translated into different languages, and going and going out through the world. Well, if it was necessary for those particular words to exist, then why did they feel that it was okay to do that? Because it's not the words that matter. It's the meaning of those words that matter. And that's what we should know. That's what we should be teaching. And that's what we should be understanding. Now, Approach the Bible with that from, from your upbringing. You know, if you're, if you're an atheist and you have that type of upbringing and someone said to you, well, you know what? The Bible is the word of God. And what we mean by that 
And some people even say, you know, infallible in the original translation, in the autographs, in the original writings. And that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. There's no way to prove it, but, you know, you, you can say that. Um, but it's when you get into the whole doctrine of preservation that the English translations that we have now are, you know, 100% perfect. But if, if you started from the position and said, listen, they are true and right and perfect in faith and practice in everything that they touch and everything that they talk about, okay, that that, the message that comes out of there, that that is God's voice. That is the word of God. This changes that dynamic. So if you come across something like a, a, a variant where it says, you know, it's a liturgical ending to the Lord's Prayer shouldn't be there. You know, so if it's taken out, okay, that's fine. It doesn't have to be there. All right. If you have that attitude, it allows you to relax a little bit because somebody can attack the Bible all day long. And and the bottom line is if we didn't have the Bible, Jesus Christ still rose from the dead. If if the if the New Testament wasn't written, we would have the writings of the church fathers who were the disciples of the disciples of Christ who say the same exact thing. You could you read their right we would have theirs. There were so many different written records. Okay, it's not like everybody stopped writing after the book of Revelation was written. Not at all. Even you know, even people would say even before Revelation was written. If you look at uh, 1 Corinthians 15, you know, Paul is is quoting a creed you know, it's in, it's like, it's not Paul's language and it's, I think it's in like a poetic form, but it's that, you know, Christ died for our sins and that stuff. I mean, I think that was the passage, the, the creed that Dr. Gary Habermas traced back to at least, you know, a couple years after the crucifixion. This was the common saying that was, that was going around. That was, that was being said. You would meet someone and they'd say, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a Christian. Well, what's that mean? Well, that means and and that's what they would say. say. Oh, I believe that too. I'm a Christian also, you know. And so you would. It was the content of what was said and what is understood that makes you a Christian or not a Christian. Forty two times in the Book of Acts, we are referred to as believers or ones who believe. So it's what you believe that makes you a Christian, not your adherence to a book or a group of books or a group of letters or a set of letters. Once you do that, you start turning that thing into an idol. Now, if you're doing that and you know, you're just becoming aware of this right now, it's not to worry because your understanding of scripture is not what saves you. Okay. You are justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ alone which means that if Jesus Christ was good enough, you are saved, okay? Even if you screw stuff up, and look, we're all going to screw stuff up. We are. That's the point of, you know, Christianity and of being a Christian is that we don't do things perfect and we recognize that we don't do things perfect. And because we recognize that we don't do things perfect, we recognize that we need a savior in order to do things perfectly because God requires perfection, within salvation. He requires you to have a perfect faith. Faith is consists faith consists of knowledge, agreement and trust or notitia, census and fiducia. You have to have perfect knowledge. 
You have to have perfect agreement and perfect trust. And this has to be something that is potentially infinite from the time that you were created and you can't slip up ever at all. That is what God requires. None of us can do it. That's why Christ came and died for us. He represents us and he did that for us. And his righteousness, because of that, his faithfulness, because of his faithfulness, his righteousness is imputed to us and our sinfulness is imputed to him. It is an exchange. Okay, this is why we can say that we are at the same time justified and sinners, or as Martin Luther uh, coined the phrase, simulate ustet peccator. When we have this understanding that we don't have to continually do things to merit our salvation and merit our justification that Christ has done it all, we can relax a little bit more. We can understand what the Bible is and our relationship to it. And we do hold it up as the Word of God, but not to the point where we're worshiping it. Okay, if if the word of God was shown to have problems, and I don't think that it does, but if it was shown to have like historical problems or something like that, then you know what? Jesus Christ still rose from the dead. My hope and my faith is built on that. Thank you for listening to Theology Pit. Get a hold of me at samsonstick.com or remember from the beginning of the uh, uh, program, Skype. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. 